If you looked into your notes this morning, you noticed that we are starting a new book of the Bible. We are starting the most important book of the Bible. Does that take you by surprise? What book is the most important book in the Bible? Leviticus. Now, who would have ever expected me to describe it that way? Two people. All right. You know, down through the years, as I talk to people and just informally and query them about their life and their Christian experience, and very often I'll ask them, you know, what... Do you have a favorite book in the Bible? Do you have a favorite verse and that sort of thing? And, and people give me all sorts of different responses about books of the Bible. And, uh, and then very often I'll ask, I say, what, what, Bible, what book of the Bible do you think is probably the most important book of the Bible? What book do you suppose I never hear in response to that? <laughs> Leviticus. Isn't it, just like, isn't it just like our flesh and the devil to diminish the most important book of the Bible, make us want to overlook it, find it irrelevant, not really that important, not exactly designed for devotional reading. And yet, may I suggest to you that many, many Bible scholars and commentators do consider the book of Leviticus to be, if not the most important, certainly one of the most important books of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? So as we, over the next weeks, begin to unfold and unwrap this book, I I pray, my hope and prayer is that it prove to be that to you. You find a a new appreciation, a new value uh, for this marvelous, marvelous book that so many people seem to find boring and dull. The book of Leviticus. We're going to do a little overview this morning, and I want to just kind of talk to you, and hopefully let's whet your appetite for this book and uh, talk to you that, about the fact that it is a great book. It's a great study, and it really does uh, portend all the things that we hold dear and that we believe uh, so strongly in, the fundamental doctrines of our faith that give us uh, truly uh, any kind of hope and confidence. Leviticus uh, I'm going to describe it as a great book, and, and a great book in, in 13 ways. And these really do cover all of the major themes of the book of Leviticus. But again, I, as I said, I want to just kind of uh, whet your appetite and encourage you. And I do want to encourage you to go back, though you've read the book already in our daily readings, I want you to go back over the next weeks and reread it again. Read it thoughtfully, read it slowly, and as you do so, say, Lord, show me your glory, just like Moses would say, right? Show me your glory as I read this book, and show me Jesus in these pages, because he is on every single page of the book of Leviticus. So let's begin to explore this book. It is a great book, the book of Leviticus. It is a great book written to be a schoolmaster. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says in the NIV translation, uh, it's put in charge. The book of Leviticus, the book of the law, it's put in charge for a very, very important reason. And what is that reason? To lead us to Christ. This is the theme of our evangelism efforts, is to understand the appropriate use of the law, how the law speaks into a person's life, and prepares them to come to salvation. And so the book of Leviticus was written, it was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Again, Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Not be justified by the law, not be justified by our good works, not be justified by our good looks, be justified by faith. But the law has to do its work. The book of Leviticus is divided up into... Two broad divisions. The first division, very simply, can be described as the way to God. Israel was given the way to God. How does one approach God? How does one 
come into God's presence, if you will. And by extension, we are given visibility of the way, the only way to approach God. And clearly, that way was through the sacrifices. We'll look at those uh, in more detail, certainly. The second division is the second half of the book of Leviticus. That is the way to walk with God. There are only two great dynamics. How does one approach God and how does one walk with God? Leviticus gives us both of those patterns, first to Israel in very specific ways, and then secondly, principally, to us. How was Israel? Was How were they to maintain? How were they to enjoy? How were they to exhibit the state of grace of which they had become participants? And the same thing is true of us. How are we to maintain, enjoy, and exhibit the very state of grace which we have become partakers? How one is to walk with God. Secondly, Leviticus is a great book on holiness. It is the manual of holiness. The words holy, sanctify, clean, unclean, all the derivatives of those words, their equivalents, occur more than 350 times in this book. It is a major theme in the book of Leviticus. God reveals one basic truth in this book, and that is, He is holy. He is holy. And he demands that his people live clean and holy lives. This is the reason for all the, all the health laws and, and all the, the cleanliness laws and so forth. And we'll look through the number of those and uh, see the principles that we can extract to apply to our own walk. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. God very simply says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. That same theme is picked up in the New Testament. And uh, God says through the New Testament that we are also to be holy because he's holy. Now, there's a dynamic there, and we'll look at this later on, that he makes us holy, but we, we participate in the process. God's at work in us, but we work out our salvation. Both things are true at the same time. And that's the mystery of the miracle of being a Christian. Leviticus was... The teaching not only of how to approach God, but again, how to live in fellowship with God. You you just can't do it any old way. There's a specific pattern, a specific design that God has prepared. It's just like life. There are certain laws that govern life, govern our existence. You must observe those laws if you're to live life. And the same thing is true in a relationship with God. There's a certain way in which he is to be approached. There's a certain way in which we can enjoy fellowship with him. But above all, Israel uh, must be taught that the holiness of God is a significant, significant issue. And uh, through the book of Leviticus, they're going to be taught that uh, in three different ways. The first way would be through the sacrificial system. Sacrifices were very, very important to the life of Israel. And through those sacrifices, uh, God's holy nature and character was revealed. He's so holy that he could not be approached without the shedding of blood. Now, it sounds strange. It sounds gory. It sounds, uh, it offends our sensibilities, if you will, at the outset. But when you understand the principle uh, and why that's the case, uh, then you understand more and more of God's holiness. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Why the emphasis on blood? Because the life is in the blood. Clearly we are sinners. Now, we don't, people don't like to hear that today. You know, I, I may be a little dysfunctional. It was the way I was raised. I didn't have the benefits that you have and so forth. We manage all these excuses and rationales for our misbehavior. And even at some point, people would even say that it's not misbehavior. It's just curious to me. See, everything's relative today. But the reality is, is that men are sinners. We've offended a holy God, a holy God. And his wrath and his holiness must be acknowledged and indeed appeased. If you go back to the book of Genesis, God, the very first command that God gave mankind in the person of Adam uh, was don't eat of this fruit because the day you eat of it is the day you will die. 
Paul reminds us that the wages of sin is death. So the, the, the great consequence of sin is death. The life is in the blood, so the blood sacrifice, a life must be given, our sin must be paid for. God just can't wink, pretend like it doesn't exist, sweep it under the carpet, ignore it. It has to be judiciously, legally, righteously dealt with. And it does so by a life given. And so the sacrificial system would signal uh, the holiness of God. Secondly, the precepts of the law would teach the people the holiness of, the God, of, of God. In Leviticus 18.5, God says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. God's law is holy and righteous and good. And man is to keep it. And as man keeps God's law, he acknowledges that God is holy. And thirdly, in the, in the last chapter of Leviticus, Leviticus 27, second to last chapter, the whole last section of that chapter is devoted to the penalties for the violations of God's laws. You read that chapter, it's a terrifying chapter. And we understand the penalties for disobedience. Simply, the penalties for disobedience, unbelief, are eternal punishment. But again, penalty implies that God's holy. His law is good. It must be obeyed. In short, Israel was to be a very distinct people. They were to be a different people. They were to be uniquely different from all the peoples around them. They were to reflect the the nature and the character, the holiness of God himself. And so, beloved, uh, are we also to exhibit that same holiness today. We are to be different people from the world around us. And that is probably, uh, if not our greatest, it's certainly one of our greatest struggles, is not to be like the world. Paul will tell us that in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. The world is always wanting to stick us into its mold, to keep us into its mold. And our challenge is not to let that happen. Thirdly, Leviticus is the great book covering the sacrificial offerings. Again, in order to become acceptable to God, a person had to approach God only one way, and that way was through the offering of an acceptable sacrifice. It wasn't a sacrifice of your own choosing. It was a kind of sacrifice that God designated. And that sacrifice would be an animal, an animal without flaw, without defect, as nearly perfect as you could find, the very best. The death of that unblemished animal, that unblemished sacrifice, would become a type, it would become a symbol of the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus is described by John in his gospel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. All the imagery, all the symbols, all the types, if you will, and uh, throughout the book of Leviticus will point us uh, in the direction of Jesus. And by his death, Christ paid the penalty for sin. Christ paid that penalty. There's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. A sacrifice has to be made. And the Bible tells us that that sacrifice, the one final sacrifice, was Jesus Christ. Very simply, it boils down to this. Either I'm going to pay for all eternity for my sins, or I'm going to uh, allow Christ to pay for my sins. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Deal or no deal. (laughs) Right? I mean, I'm going to pay for all eternity. Why? Why is it all eternity? Because I've, I've offended an infinite God. And an imperfect being cannot fulfill a demand for perfect justice. So I'm going to be paying for all eternity. But God offers me forgiveness. He says, trust in my son. I so loved you that I gave him so you would believe in him. You'd not have to pay it for all eternity. He's paid it for you. What a deal. The death of Jesus as a sacrifice was substitutionary. The animals were substitutes for the people. The sacrifices were substitutionary sacrifices. And Jesus died as our substitute 
He died, as Paul says, once for all. His death was sufficient for every person who ever lived and who ever would live. His death was sufficient for every sin ever committed, past, present, and future. But his death was efficient only for those who would believe. Understand the the distinction between the two. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. For all time, for all people, and for all sin. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes this. He's speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all wickedness. Notice, we don't redeem ourselves. He redeems us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see the marvelous picture of Christ doing all this, working in us, changing us, transforming us. You say, well, what do I do? I cooperate. I participate with him. I say, yes, Lord. I, to use Paul's words, I walk after the Spirit as the Spirit leads me to follow Christ. That simple. Fourthly, Leviticus is the great book of atonement. Atonement or at one meant. You can divide the word up that way. At one meant. The idea is that we are at one with God. We are at peace with God. We are reconciled with God. That word atonement means a number of things. Depending on the context, it can be used to mean pay a ransom price. We have been purchased with a price, haven't we? And the price is the precious blood of Jesus. It can also mean to cleanse or to wash away. We know that our sins, figuratively speaking, have been washed away. We've been cleansed by the blood. We sing that song, that hymn. The word also means to cover, to cover over. That word is used some 45 times in the book of Leviticus. Again, a predominant theme. Remember, though, that the blood of those animals did not take away the sins of the people. The blood of those animal sacrifices merely pictured or symbolized that one final perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross who would take away all the sin, who would wash us of all of our guilt, who would cleanse our consciences. Though God never did accept the blood of bulls and goats as final payment for our sin, nevertheless, he required that blood be shed. It was a powerful picture of the cost of sin. A life has to be given. But even though the blood of those bulls and goats never were accepted by God as final payment. It was an atonement, if you will, to cover over temporarily the sins until Christ would come. Every time one of those animals was sacrificed for sin, it just covered over temporarily the sins of the people. In other words, God saved in the Old Testament. He saved on credit. And when Christ came, he paid the bill in full. We all understand what it means to use credit, don't we? I get the goods now. I get, the, I get what I want now. But I know that there's got to be a payment later on. This is really the picture of the Old Testament sacrifices. They just covered over, covered over temporarily until that one final sacrifice where Jesus paid the final bill. And this is true. This is true with regard to all of the sins of the past. It's true with regard to all the sins of the present. And it's true with regard to all the sins of the future. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. That's why Paul will go on and say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now only a little bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, there's no condemnation. None. God has set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life. He set us free. We're born again. We have a whole new future. We have a living hope. 
We are born again. We are new creations. This is the miracle of being a Christian. No one else can say this. Only you and I. Our sins have been forgiven. God is not angry with us. His guns of judgment are not trained on us anymore. Beloved, we are free and we are now eager to do what is good. Amen? Amen. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says it this way, verse 10. He says, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. When, when I was at my very worst, Christ died for me. When I was his enemy, if I was reconciled back then to him, he says, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, our, through, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That phrase, have now received reconciliation, in the Greek language, it's, it's couched in the perfect tense. It's done. It's finished. We have received. We are permanently reconciled with God. Somebody say hallelujah to that. So this book is a book about atonement. It's a book about dealing with sin. And though it was temporary in the Old Covenant, temporary under the book of Leviticus, temporary through the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, it pointed to the one final sacrifice that would make it all permanent and we would have one final full reconciliation with God. Fifthly, Leviticus is the great book revealing the terrible tragedy of sin. Now again, there's overlap in in all these categories, all these dynamics, But if we can separate them out, it really is a great book, and it does reveal the terrible tragedy, the cost of sin. Man typically rejects God, the God of the Bible, the one true living God. Man rejects him. We saw that in the garden. We saw the first man turning his back on God. And it's been that way ever since. Man rejects God. Now, I know we run into all sorts of people who say, and and we said it before we truly became believers. We said, well, I believe in God. I believe in God. What God did you believe in? Can you describe him? What's he like? Or is your God an it? Is your God the all-nothingness? How do you describe your God, this God that you believe in? You do not believe in the one true living God of the Bible. That's a fact. All men rebel from him. All men hide from him. In fact, many people say there is no God. Why? Because they, they intuitively know that he's there, but they do not want to submit. And as soon as they admit his presence, his reality, then they have to submit. We not only reject him, we deny him, we curse him, we question him, we rebel him. This is mankind in general. All those things are true. Man disobeys God, disobeys his commandments in every conceivable way. And in fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says, we invent ways of doing evil. It's not just the normal ways that we do. We, we have to go find new ways to disobey God, to do evil. The point is, our condition is terrible. Well, I'm not such a bad person. We always try to justify ourselves, don't we? We always try to justify ourselves. Man sins against God, and the consequences of sin is separation, alienation, and ultimately death. Not only physical death, spiritual death. Again, when God spoke to Adam and he he gave him the one command, he says, you have, I'm giving you all of this, steward it, take care of it. Only that one tree, don't eat of that tree, for in the day you eat of it is the day you will die. The day you'll be separated. That's the day in that, when you make that choice. That's the day you're going to be separated from me. You're going to be separated from yourself. You're going to be separated from your neighbor. You'll be separated from all that's meaningful. There's going to be separation, alienation. 
We know what happened. He did that. Adam disobeyed God, went his own way, ate of the tree, and immediately sin set in, and that began the downward course of mankind. Separation, alienation, and ultimately death. That's our problem. Genesis chapter 3 really addresses why there's evil in the world, why there's disease, why there's um, uh, disaffection, why there's death. It's sin. Sin. Sin and its terrible consequences were the very reason why God instituted a way for a person to become acceptable to him. Sin and its terrible consequences are the very reason why God instituted a way for a person to live a holy life before him. The Bible says, quite frankly, we were helpless. We were hopeless. That was our true condition. Again, people don't want to hear this, but that's the reality of man's condition. As hard as we work and try, our best political efforts, our best psychological efforts, all of man's efforts, all of man's ways to bring reconciliation where there's clearly division, clearly alienation, continue to fail, continue to fail. And it's only by God's way that he provides can we, one, become acceptable to him, and two, can we live a holy life before him, and we can begin to experience healing and reconciliation in all of these relational areas. Because after all, life, that's what life's all about. It's all about relationship, isn't it? Everything is a function of relationship when you think about it. Everything is a function of relationship. If I'm out of relationship, my life is going to go nowhere. I'm going to be one frustrated person. We're designed, we're built for relationships. We hunger for relationship. And without them, we just shrink up, shrivel up, and we'll die. The most important relationship is the relationship with God, isn't it? I must be rightly related to him. I must know, how is it? Can I approach him? And God gives me that instruction, and sort of the precursors of it in the great book of Leviticus. Number six, Leviticus is the great book on the high priest. The mediator. It could be called the handbook of the priests. Because all the duties and the ministry of the priests are covered in the book of Leviticus. The New Testament calls true believers a priesthood, doesn't it? We're priests. Priests to our God, priests to one another. And there's some terrific parallels in the priesthood here, uh, not only to Jesus, but also to you and I as priests. The importance of the high priest in representing the people before God is clearly seen through the sacrificial offerings and also the altar. The absolute necessity for the high priest, the absolute necessity for a mediator to stand before God on behalf of the people runs throughout Leviticus, indeed runs throughout the Bible. Again, you cannot just approach God any old way based on your own reckoning. Well, I can go to God. I don't need anybody to go to God. No, we can only go to God through our mediator. We have an advocate. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a formula. But we're acknowledging, Lord, I can come and I can lay these things before you. I can ask you because Jesus is my advocate. He's given me the way in. He said, you can ask anything in my name. So, Lord, I pray this. I prayed in Jesus' name. By his advocacy, we have an advocate with the Father. The Father is the judge. Jesus is the advocate. Jesus is continually pleading our case before the judge, isn't he? He lives to intercede for us, says the writer to the Hebrews. I had a brother come to me this uh, last month and going through a, a, a tragic dissolution of his marriage and there are children involved. And those of you who... who akin to those, you know what I'm talking about, how difficult and painful those experiences are. 
he didn't come to me to seek counsel on how he should seek reconciliation and what he should do and what lessons he needs to learn as a husband and a father to correct some of the problems. He came to me because he wanted a recommendation for a lawyer. And I said to him, I said, you already have a lawyer. You already have an advocate. There is a judge who is judging you. There's a judge who's judging your life. There is one who has every detail of your life sovereignly in his hands. And you have one who lives to intercede for you moment by moment by moment. Yeah, but I, I, I still need a lawyer. So you're not hearing what I'm saying. You have one. The problem is you haven't been turning to your lawyer all along. You've been leaning on your own understanding, functioning according to your own priorities. I so say you already have one. Seek him. Acknowledge and, and, and come to grips with the reality that God has your life in his hands, that he is working. He has every detail of your life under his sovereign control. Surrender to him. And you just tell Jesus, Jesus, you represent me before the Father. And I pray your will be done. I trust you. Whatever the consequences are, whatever comes down, Lord, I know that it's I know that you're going to use them for my good. I trust you. But what if I lose all my money? What if I lose my kids? You won't lose your kids. If you never see your kids until they're 18, you still have the most powerful access to their lives given to you that anybody could ever hope to have. You can pray for them every day. And if God sees fit that you should not see them, you bow before that. Don't kick against the goads. What are we talking about? We're talking about ultimate surrender. If you have a doctor and the doctor tells you you have a severe disease, the doctor says, do thus and such, and you trust and you believe your doctor, you do what the doctor says. Or if you have a, a, an attorney who, who, who gives you instructions to do thus and such, and you really trust this, this person's judgment, you do it. God says, trust me. I said, you've, you've, you've messed up your life already. You've messed up your marriage. You've messed up your family by living the way you've lived selfishly. Don't persist on that path. On that path. Take a new path. Learn to trust God. You have an advocate. The high priest was the advocate. The high priest was the mediator between the people and God. Pointed to one other great mediator for us, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He is our high priest. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks of him as such. Our great high priest. Marvelous picture. Number 7, Leviticus is the great book of symbols and types. Typology, symbolism, pictures clearly seen in this book, pointing to greater realities. They point to the sacrifices. They point to the high priesthood, the mission of Jesus Christ. All the symbolism point to those dynamics. All the types and the symbols in the book of Leviticus point again to the desperate need of man for cleansing and holiness. You cannot escape it. Jesus Christ, his priesthood, the sacrifice of Christ, our need for cleansing and holiness. It's a great book of symbols and types. Number eight, Leviticus is the great book covering the institution 
of all the feasts, of all the festivals of Israel. There were a number of these. They were all representative of some significant event, either in Israel's past or their future. And again, in Christ, they would all be fulfilled for us. Marvelously, marvelous pictures. The feasts and the festivals were sacred assemblies. There were times when God's people would come together and they would worship Him and they would joyfully celebrate all that God had done and all that God would do. The first and foremost, the most basic of all the appointed times that God set forth for His people was the Sabbath. God required His people to take a Sabbath every week, a day of rest. This was so important to Him, He meant it to be so important to His people, that if you violated the Sabbath, it was a capital offense requiring the death penalty. Amazing. Well, it's just a day off. It's just a Sabbath. No, you have to understand how important this is to God. There were the three spring festivals, and these three spring festivals were closely related in time. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. All within basically just uh, several days of each other. These three festivals began the Jewish New Year. Passover, of course, celebrated God's great deliverance of his people from bondage to slavery in Egypt, you recall. And they were to remember that every year. They were to rehearse their history, rehearse God's redeeming of them. But Passover also pictured for us in the person of Christ, because he's described as our Passover lamb. Passover pictures for the believer, for the Christian, God's great deliverance of us from the bondage to slavery, doesn't it? Slavery to sin. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread pictured God's, the urgency of God's people to leave Egypt. Passover happened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed right on the heels of that. The idea of unleavened bread. They, they, God said, don't even take time to bake the bread. Don't put yeast in it. Have to wait for it to rise. Be prepared to go now. And there's a picture there for us as believers that we are prepared as we've been delivered from the bondage of slavery to sin. We've been delivered. We are to flee from youthful lusts. We're to flee from the, the world system. We're in the world, but we're not of the world anymore. There's a certain urgency. Don't linger. Don't hang out. Don't say, well, I, you know, I miss all that. No, flee. And thirdly, there was the Feast of First Fruits. And this was the spring festival to thank God for the harvest. This would be the barley harvest that he promised when they entered into the promised land. But again, it pictured the first fruits for us. Jesus is our first fruits, isn't he? Those resurrected from the dead, he's the first we follow after. But even beyond that, we are to give God the first fruits of our life, the first part of our life as an acknowledgement and as an act of gratitude for what he has and will continue to provide for us. Then came the Festival of Weeks also described as the Festival of Harvest or the Festival of Pentecost. And again, this was to celebrate the wheat harvest and God's abundant provision. Again, once they possessed the land, they were to give thanks and they were to dedicate their lives anew to God. God had provided a great harvest for them. But it also symbolized the great harvest of souls that would come in that began on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, people giving their lives to God. So Pentecost holds great symbolism. We'll study that in more detail later. The Feast of Trumpets would follow that. The Feast of Trumpets was a one-day feast. The trumpets were sounded to arouse the people again 
midterm, so to speak, to trust God. We need a reminder, don't we? I mean, life can kind of go along and go along and we can settle into our routine. The trumpets were sounded to remind the people, to arouse them to a fresh new enthusiasm and trust and blessing to God. To heed the message of joy for their atonement and reconciliation. It was really also a picture of the glorious day when Christ would return to take all his people to be with him forever. When the trumpet sounds, the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Paul says, and we who are alive and remain shall be taken up with them to be with the Lord forever at the last trumpet. Oh my. Then there was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles would celebrate uh, for the people and remind them of their wilderness wanderings through those 40 years in the wilderness before they entered the Promised Land. The people lived in tents, And the idea was that they were living in a continual dependence upon God. This was a reminder of that. And beloved, for us, just as their dwellings were temporary in the wilderness, so also our dwelling here is only temporary. This is not our home. We need to be regularly reminded of that. This is not our home. We have to remember continually and be reminded by one another, hold on to this life. This life and the things of this life lightly. Hold on to them lightly. We know how quickly this life can go by, huh? We know how quickly life can be taken. We know how quickly things can be taken. And if we hold on to them tightly, we're only going to grieve all that much more. Our vision for our future, our permanent home in heaven will be diminished. We live in the already and the not yet, one theologian said. This is not our home. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. We're no longer of this world. And so the book of Leviticus is a great book detailing all the great festivals and all the great symbolism in those festivals for you and I. Number nine, Leviticus is a great book that gives the prophetic picture of salvation. The whole book itself prophesies It's a prophecy about this incredible miracle called salvation. Number 10, Leviticus is the great book on sanctification. It's a great book on consecration and separation from the world. We talked about this a little bit already. This is one of the great themes of Leviticus. Indeed, it's one of the great themes of all of Scripture. God's people are to live lives of separation. Lives that are different from the lawlessness and the immorality of this world. Lives that are sanctified. Lives that are consecrated to God. This is a question that we, we want to rehearse every time uh, we can. to sit down and say, am I, am I consecrated? Am I sanctified? Am I, am I really committed to God and to His will and to His purposes. doesn't mean you become a vocational pastor or vocational ministry. It just means simply that you're committed to walking after Him. You're committed to saying, yes, Lord. You're committed even in the most mundane things of life that whatever you do, you do as unto Him. Lord, I want you honored. I want to honor you with my life. If you're a student, I want to be a student as unto you. If I'm a husband, I want to be a husband as unto you, a wife unto you, a parent as unto you, an employer as unto you. And we can go down the list. The believer's total being, total being, body, soul, spirit, are to be totally given over to God. This is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, he says, uh, in view of God's mercy, the only response that we could possibly come up with is to offer our body meaning the totality of our existence, the totality of our being, offer our body, everything we are, to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is how we worship God, with everything that we are, totally consecrated, totally sanctified, totally committed to him. And the, and the book of Leviticus teaches us that. Every aspect of life. This is, this is why you have all these laws on cleanliness and all the laws on disease and all the laws 
uh, the dietary laws. Every, every possible law that covered every detail of life spoke about this total consecration. Number 11, Leviticus is the great book on social justice. Social justice. Literally proclaiming liberty throughout the land. And God provided that. He instituted the great day of Jubilee. Every 50 years was called a year of Jubilee. Now, to my knowledge, Israel never actually practiced it. But nonetheless, it was in the law, and God required them to do so. The year of Jubilee was meant to provide justice in the land. In the 50th year, all debts were canceled. In the 50th year, land uh, was returned to original owners. In the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, slaves were set free. Everything kind of went back to a zero balance. And we understand, just, just in the economies of things, just, it's in our temporal economies, how wealth, land, possessions tend to migrate and they tend to concentrate in certain arenas, don't they? And you have the division of classes of people. God meant for all of his people to be blessed. He wasn't, a, he wasn't opposed to, to lending. He wasn't opposed to uh, acquiring properties and so forth. Uh, he wasn't a, a, a opposed to incentives, but, but he was imposed, opposed to injustice. And this would ensure against injustice. And then the 50th year, everything would revert back to a zero balance in effect. The great declaration on the Statue of Liberty itself was taken from Leviticus 25.10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants. It's on a very Statue of Liberty, interestingly. Number 12, Leviticus is the great book revealing God's word to his people. Throughout the entire book, some 56 times, you have some variation on God said, God spoke, God called Moses, God said to Moses. God's revealing his word over and over and over, and this is the great book of the revelation of the word of God. And up to this point, God spoke only from Mount Sinai, but now he would be in the very midst of his people, living in their midst in the tabernacle, and he would speak out of the tabernacle. And that leads us to our last point. Leviticus is the great book on the abiding presence of God. This is a marvelous principle. It was God's great desire and purpose to live in the midst of his people. When you study how the tabernacle was arranged and you study the arrangement of the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle, God lived right in the midst of his people. That's his desire. His very name, Emmanuel, God with us. A picture of his desire now by his spirit to live in the midst of us, doesn't he? The Holy Spirit lives in us. He's taken up residence in us. Our bodies are uh, individually temples of the Holy Spirit. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not a building. This is not the temple. We are the temple of God's presence. The amazing thing is God desires to dwell in the midst of his people. And he desires his presence to be an abiding presence, a continuing presence. This is one of the great underlying themes of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a great book. I submit to you it is, it is the most important book of the entire Bible. It is a book that reminds us of the eternal realities of life the presence of God, and our need to know Him. And because of His great mercy, we may know Him. Because of His great mercy, we may be forgiven our sins. Because of His great mercy, we may inherit eternal life. Paul sums it all up in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... How many would say, God has been merciful to me? In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, not dead sacrifices, not like those animal sacrifices, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him, which is your spiritual worship. And do not conform 
any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then, he says, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Beloved, God has the very best for us, and it's all prefigured in this great book of Leviticus. I hope you enjoy the study. Read it. Read it again, slowly, thoughtfully. Learn to enjoy it. Father, we thank you for your provision in every way. We thank you for this book called the Bible. And we're more particularly thankful, Lord, for this great book called Leviticus. Give us an appetite, Lord, for it. Help us to appreciate it and value it and see the wonders of your great person and truth in all the symbols and all the pictures contained therein. Father, I pray for those here this morning who may not know you in a personal way, who may not be born again. God, you brought them here. It's not a coincidence. You wanted to hear some things. You wanted to expose them to the life of your church. I pray, God, for them, and I pray that you would turn their heart more fully towards you. I pray and ask you to grant them repentance. Open their eyes to the truth of their need for you and forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you would save them. And God, I pray, too, for those who profess to already know you, who are walking, Lord, still in their own fleshly desires and appetites, who are not yet truly consecrated to you. I pray, God, that as they open this book called Leviticus and read it, would be impressed and would come home and commit themselves to you unequivocally. God, draw them, I pray, each one, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, give them, if you know them real well, give them a holy hug. If you're not too sure, just...